Please could you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're opening up a new book of the Bible. Well, I say it's a new book, it's been there for thousands of years, but um, it's new to us this morning. We're going to be doing eight sessions in the book of Nehemiah this term. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will appear on the screen behind me as we get into this person and this topic today. So, Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, if you go three books back from Psalms, Psalms is in the middle of the Bible, go back three books and you'll find yourself in Nehemiah. And it says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We're going to skip the prayer, just to the very last verse of the chapter, verse 11. I was cupbearer to the king. Well, today it's my job to introduce you to this character, Nehemiah. And you may be familiar with him, he may be new to you. There's always people of different stages in the Christian life in Kings, and and, uh, we regularly teach through the Bible. Well, the first thing we know about this man is this, that He lived about two and a half thousand years ago, 445 BC. And it's important for us just to get to know him a little bit before we find out what he did. And here's the first thing we learn about him. And what you find is, I don't know if you studied the Bible much or not, but often the things that uh, preachers wow you with are just purely right there in front of your nose. So today I just want you to see some things that are right in front of your nose. In verse 2, Nehemiah says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came to see me. Immediately we're aware that Nehemiah is a Jewish man. That's what that text tells us, that his brothers had come from Judah, from Jerusalem, and they'd come to see Nehemiah. But we also see that he's not living where he's meant to be living. He's an immigrant. He's living in a foreign land, far away from where he's meant to be living. And that's because his home nation, Israel, back in that time, had been totally destroyed. It had been ransacked by the Babylonians. They'd totally wrecked it. They'd torched everything that could be torched, whether it was a house or a wall. I don't know how you burn a wall, but they managed to burn walls down. They burnt the temple down, which was the very center uh, which described God's presence in the heart of Israel. They just burnt it down, and they took everything of value in the nation of Israel and in its temple, and they took it away with them. They looted it. It was destroyed. And worse than that, Anybody who wasn't useful to them, they killed them. They put them to death. When we see the horrors in the world today, you know, these things have been happening for thousands of years. It shows us that the world is a broken place. 83 years earlier, Nehemiah's family had been forcibly removed because they'd been seen as valuable somehow to their captors, so they'd taken them away and forcibly resettled them in the citadel of Susa which is in modern-day Iran, then Persia. He was an exile. He was somebody who lived away from his home. 
You know, the Bible says that if you're a Christian, then actually that's what life is like for you and me before we get to heaven. We're actually not living in our home territory here. We're living for a home that is to come. But here's the second thing we see about Nehemiah. He was somebody's son, just like you or me, or daughter. In fact, verse 1 that we read there says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. We don't know much about Hakaliah other than that Nehemiah was much more famous than he was. Do you know, it's often that way with your children. It's often that way with people that you train and influence, whether you're a boss at work or a senior teacher, and your job is to to train people up and to, to help them to do a better job. And then you find this, that they go way beyond you. They exceed your job. They become your manager. They become the talking point everybody's talking about. Well, that seems to be God's way of doing things in life. Often the people that we're raising up, whether they're children or others, are the very ones that go on to do much more than we ever will. That's good for our humility, and the sooner we learn that lesson, the better it is we are for it. But we do know that his parents seem to do quite a good job with him, because he grew up to be an educated man. In fact, he wrote this book. This book is written in the first person. That means that he wrote it. Some of you here today, probably many of us, would be university educated. And sometimes you can get the idea that the Bible's a bit down on education. That it, you know, you often hear about the characters like Gideon and Jacob, and they were just sort of peasants and farmers, or people who, who didn't really have much going for them, and God used them mightily, which is always very, very good to hear. But, you know, sometimes God chooses guys like Nehemiah, people who have been educated in the systems of the world, And he lets the world train them in in education and and hierarchy. And then he he just takes them and says, I'm going to use that for my glory. That's the third thing we see. We see that he rose to a great position of influence and authority and responsibility. That final verse we read saying, I was cupbearer to the king. That might just read to you like, well, he was a butler. What's so important about that? He was the most trusted person in the kingdom. There was nobody more trustworthy than Nehemiah. Do you know why? Because in a, in a time when kingdoms were overthrown, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, and, and the, the kings came and go, even in your own kingdom, you never know if somebody sitting next to you was going to be trying to get your job. You didn't last long as a king in those days. So what the king would do would be to employ somebody to watch everything he ate and drank. And that person would be responsible for ensuring the entire supply chain for the king was kept free from somebody just dropping a little bit of arsenic in his cup. So Nehemiah had a responsible job. He also had a life-threatening job because sometimes the king would point to him and say, you know what, Nehemiah, just before I drink this wine, I'd just like you to drink it first and I'll wait five minutes and we'll just see what happens. So he had an incredibly responsible job to make sure that the king was not poisoned. He was a personal confidant of the king. We find that in chapter 2 to come. And we know this final thing about Nehemiah, that he was mightily used by God as the chapters unfold. And if you want to read the book of Nehemiah, I'd really encourage you to do that. It took me 27 minutes to read it from start to finish. I wonder if you could beat my time. There's your challenge for this week. I skipped all the genealogies in the middle, because I never read the genealogies when I read the Bible. (laughs) But 27 minutes. If you can beat that time, email me, okay? 
And uh, the, the fastest one, I will give a, um, I, I will give some Cadbury's buttons to. How about that? <laughs> he was mightily used by God to, to rebuild ancient Jerusalem and to particularly build its walls which had been broken down and unrepaired. But here's the thing I really want us to bring us to today as we're studying this man, that he was a man who was deeply sensitive to the heart of God. And this is the story as it unfolds for us today as we've read it, that Nehemiah's there one day, he's minding his own business, and some, uh, some traveling messengers come, his brother Hanani and, and some others, and they visit in what he describes as the month of Kislev. Are you, uh, are you familiar with the month of Kislev? Yeah, that's right. It's right between uh, November and December for us. It kind of comes at that time of year, just as we're singing Christmas songs and watching John Lewis adverts. They were thinking Kislev. Now, Kislev, it was the month of rain. It was the time when, in a highly arable subsistence culture where people needed food to survive, people were heavily dependent on the rain coming. So that month of the year, Kislev, late November time, in Iran, they were looking to the skies thinking, is the rain going to come? And their whole year could be predicted based on whether the rain would come or not. So it was sometimes called the month of rain or the month of dreaming because people would have a sense of anticipation. They'd be thinking, is it going to come? Are we going to get a lot of rain or a little rain? Is it going to be the biggest crop ever this year? And so when Nehemiah writes this account for us, he says, yeah, I remember when these messengers came because it was that month. It was that month of anticipation and expectation and this is something I read into the character of Nehemiah, that, that he was a bit of a dreamer. You see, his reaction when he receives the news of devastation surely means this, that he was expecting something totally different from what they said. And I imagine it was something like this, that, that as he said, well, tell me the news about Jerusalem. He hasn't heard for years from what's going on there. And so he says, tell me the news. Is it big? Is it busy? Is it glorious? Perhaps he's remembering back to Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed, but, but now had been rebuilt in some measure. And, and he remembered how the glory of God had filled that temple to the point where everybody in Israel and beyond knew that there was a God in Israel. He's thinking, do people know yet? Do the foreign nations, have they understood that God, Yahweh, is the true God who we must worship? Has it reached that point yet? Are there many hundreds and thousands of people gathering in Jerusalem and worshipping again? Are there nations seeing and fearing? He would have been full of dreams and excitement about what could have been 13 years earlier a group had returned and rebuilt that temple with the permission of the king at the time, with government funding to rebuild. So he thought, this is a goer. God is building his kingdom. Perhaps for us, we could imagine somebody from Christianity past in Scotland. We know where we're at now, and we know it's a highly secularized culture and all of that, but when we think back 150 years ago, and I often look at that name plaque on the back wall, the, the Reverend John Morgan, who, whose church building we meet in now, and who founded this congregation. It was a, it was a Church of Scotland congregation, and and when he ministered, people were come, becoming Christians, left, right, and center. You, they couldn't build church buildings fast enough. Church buildings on every corner in Israel, packed with people. 
And he went out on a bit of a high. He must have thought, like many in church history have done, he must have thought, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before Jesus comes again because we seem to be right on the edge of the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. Just a matter of time before Scotland in its entirety becomes Christian. He must have had those sorts of thoughts. So you can imagine him coming to one of us today without knowing any of the history. He says, so how, how's it going? Has it gone everywhere? Is everybody saved in Scotland now? And if you can imagine yourself having to answer that question and saying, well, it's not quite what it was in your day, but you know what? We saved this building from becoming flats five years ago. And we're rebuilding and people are becoming Christians, but it's a bit slow. And you can imagine the disappointment with which these messengers come to Nehemiah. As they say, well, Nehemiah, this is how it is in Jerusalem these days. It's a ruin. Its walls have been broken down with fire. Anytime an enemy wants to disagree with something that the people of Israel think is important, all they have to do is just walk across the wall, threaten to burn the temple down again, and everybody says, well, we'll do whatever you say. It's a disgrace. It's a laughing stock. Nobody takes God seriously. Nehemiah sits down, and he does that very unscottish male thing. He starts crying. I don't know how the other guys in that room are feeling at that point, but I can only imagine they just feel awkward. Here's a high-ranking official, and he's just sobbing in front of them. Maybe one of them offers to call him an ambulance, or maybe they just quietly leave, but what we're left with is this sense that this is a God moment between God and Nehemiah, and his heart is devastated. You know, Nehemiah is a heart story from first to last. Don't ever think it's just about the building of the walls. Never make the mistake in your life of thinking that your life is simply about what you do, because what happens in your heart is what matters. Nehemiah is Christ-like in that he weeps over Jerusalem. Weeping is something that some do a lot and some do a little. You know, nobody likes crying for the sake of it, do they? We often teach our kids, look, just stop crying. But the Bible teaches that our emotions are gifts from God. As human beings, we're image bearers of God. And we have that unique wonder in the created order of of experiencing what it is to feel things very deeply. Some of you can identify with these emotions. This guy, happy, sad, laughing, terrified. But broader than that, we know what it is to feel angry, to feel hurt, to feel embarrassed to feel upset, to feel love, to feel delight, to feel unsure. But the Bible also says that we're fallen human beings. That is to say that all of our emotions, no matter how pure they are, are limited and tainted by sin. 
sometimes we can overvalue that emotional response. Sometimes you think, well, because somebody's crying, gosh, they must be really spiritual. Sometimes there's a danger in a church like ours where we, we have expressed worship and we, we love to worship gods with eyes closed and hands high and we love to express what's in our heart. Sometimes you can think that there's points for just being emotional. And actually, that's not quite right. What God looks for is sanctified emotions, things that have been made holy by him, so that those of us who are intrinsically criers, you know, you you find an opportunity to cry most days, and that's not because you're more spiritual, it's because you, you just cry a lot. Some of you never cry. Some of you would be like, I've, I've never done that. I, I've never found the need to cry. I never expressed myself that way. And, and in this same church, both of those same people will be here. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Not to become more like another person, but to become more like Christ. When Christ wept over Jerusalem, he, Jesus didn't just cry all the time. He said lots of things. He taught lots of things. He was useful, but he also expressed pure emotion. God wants to, by the Holy Spirit, change our emotions to be more like Christ. And Nehemiah, perhaps more than any other person in Scripture, expresses that for us here today. Today, God wants to do heart surgery on us, to make us feel the things he feels and care about the things he cares about, to express godly emotion that leads to fruitful actions. So where do we start with this? Well, it seems to be that how we hear news is all important. Nehemiah made a point of saying, tell me about. Jesus said, be careful how you listen. There's a danger these days with our information overload in our culture, just news feeds coming at you all the time. Everybody knows a bit about something. But very few of us care a lot about one thing. I want to suggest that God wants us to care more about a few things and less about a lot of things. We've been faced with some horrific images on the news in recent days about migrants and and refugees. And those things do something in our heart. And it's good that they do something in our heart. But do you know there's lots of other news that God wants to share with us? Do you know that one day judgment is coming and that every person in Edinburgh, Scotland and the world is going to stand before him? Have you heard the news that the angels gave 2,000 years ago saying, today a saviour is born, he is Christ the Lord. It was news that's going to change the world and it is the destiny for every person to hear that news. Have you heard this news that Jesus is alive today and he's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Jesus isn't coming back for some weedy little church that's an irrelevance to, to the world. He's coming back to a church that's going to be glorious and he's going to build that for us. He's going to build it with us and many other churches. He's doing something truly magnificent. Have you heard that news? God wants you to hear it. But Nehemiah did more than hear the news. And let me just give you, in these final few minutes, four 
diagnosis of what I believe is a healthy, godly heart. And as we go through these, you can assess for yourself how you're doing. Here's the first point of a healthy heart. It it takes an interest in other people. It's interested. Sometimes people use this phrase, they say, you know what, ignorance is bliss. If I don't know what's happening, it doesn't matter. Well, that's not true. Of course it matters what's not happening in your tiny little life. We can get so wrapped up in our own thing. A healthy heart is inquisitive. It says, tell me about. Proverbs 15 says, the discerning heart seeks knowledge. When you have a healthy heart, God gives you a capacity to keep asking questions about other people. And if God's calling you to a specific area, what you find is you keep asking questions. You don't wait for somebody to give a presentation to you. You go and find out. If there's an area that God's calling to you, you find people and say, tell me about. How do I do this? How can I be involved? If God's calling you to more general leadership, then my observation would be this, that you often find yourself just asking random questions to all sorts of people. Somebody has a job that you've got no knowledge of, you say, oh, tell me about that. That sounds really interesting. And you learn things from them. You have no kids, but you talk to a kids worker and you say, tell me, what, what, what's it like being a kids worker in King's Church? How, how is it here? You talk to children and you say, hey, what are you doing at school? What's it like to be a child these days? I've forgotten. A healthy heart takes an interest in things and asks questions. Here's the second thing about a healthy heart. It cares more about others than about itself. It's not self-centered. In James chapter 1, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. We've got all these emotions. What James tells us in that little passage there is that our emotions can be self-centered or God-centered, other-centered. And he takes this one example of anger. Do you know it's okay to get angry? Jesus got angry in the temple in Jerusalem. There was people ripping people off, ripping poor people off, trying to sell them stuff in the temple so they could sacrifice and and worship God. And Jesus hated it, and he went in with a whip, and he drove them out. He got so cross with them. That was a righteous anger. That wasn't sinful, but that's on the whole not what we do. What we do on the whole tends to be more about the things that upset us personally. This week I had a bad moment on, uh, on Monday morning. Just dropping Ben at school, you know, it was going so well. I love Mondays, it's my day off. And uh, got out of the car, didn't have money for the parking machine. So I, I just went into the nearest shop, which was 10 metres away, to get some change. And I came out of the shop within two minutes which you'll know is important in Edinburgh. Within two minutes, the, the traffic warden had issued me a ticket already. And that's not unusual in Edinburgh for people to issue tickets, but he was still there issuing the ticket, and I was absolutely furious. I said, I was just getting change. I said, I, I, I haven't even been here five minutes. You have to wait five minutes to go for the ticket. And he, I mean, he was sympathetic. He said, 
said, well, he said, it's not actually the five-minute issue. It's because you're, you're parked slightly over the edge of this white line. And he said, you're not allowed to do that. As if that was going to help me somehow, this explanation. I was really cross. And I, I was full of, I mean, I mean, you never want to see a pastor get angry. You really don't. In the words of the Incredible Hulk, you won't like me when I'm angry. I was really annoyed, and I, you know, I was full of all those, well, I'm going to appeal this one, I'm going to take it to the council, and I'm, I'm going to write a letter, and, and, and then a bit later that day, after I just calmed down a bit, and I was repenting, and <laughs> all those things, and I, I, I just began to think that the words of this scripture came to mind, and I thought, what if I actually started writing letters about things that mattered? What if when I got to glory and, and Jesus was going through the letters I'd written in my life, and what if rather than him finding a thousand parking appeals, he actually found some letters that did somebody some good other than me? I'd like to think that I was arguing for the people of Edinburgh and for the drivers of Edinburgh, but that wasn't true. So it, in that moment, I just thought, well, maybe this week I could do something different. And so obviously we talked last week at the church about the refugee crisis, and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to write to the council this week. And I just took a moment, and I just emailed uh, Andrew Burns, the head of the council, and I just said, look, for what this is worth, I said, I'm a pastor of a church in Edinburgh, and I, I, I know that you'll be welcoming some refugees here in months to come, and Edinburgh's agreed to take 100 refugees so far from the, the European crisis. And I said... I said, I don't know what we can do as a church. I'm not quite sure, but I do know that as a church, we're great at community and friendship and, and building people in who are new to a city. And if we could be of any help at all, then we'd love to be part of that conversation to see what we could do. He just emailed back straight away. He said, thanks, that's so great. I'll pass your details on to the person who's coordinating that. It took me five minutes. I'm hoping that email will do far more than any of my parking appeals ever will. Make sure that our human emotions are directed towards godly ends. Here's the third thing about a healthy heart. It still cares when the initial emotion has subsided. It's not temporary. It's easy to shed a few tears in a moment. You watch a film and you cry, and a day later you've forgotten about it. Nehemiah sat down, sat down and wept. For days he mourned and fasted and prayed. Do you know, in chapter 2... When the king, we'll see this later, he, the king says, I see you've got great sadness of heart. Do you know how much later that was than chapter 1? Well, it tells you at the beginning of chapter 2, it says it was in the month of Nisan. Do you know when the month of Nisan is? You're not good at this calendar, are you, you guys? Well, the month of Nisan is four months after the month of Kislev. It's kind of Easter time. So here's Nehemiah. He heard some terrible news that gutted him. Four months later, he's still feeling exactly the same about it. That's the true measure of emotion. What are you feeling in four months' time or a year's time about that same thing that you are stirred about today? It's not all about the tears. Jesus told a story about two brothers. And the story is that the dad comes in one day to these two brothers and he says, he says hey guys, I've got a load of work to do in the fields today and I need your help. Can you help me? And the enthusiastic one says, yes, Dad, I'll help Dad. I'll get my shoes on, Dad, I'll be right there. 
And then the other one says, no, playing my iPad today, can't help. And he's a bit of a misery about it. But do you know what happens? The, the enthusiastic one, the one who responds in the moment, totally forgets. It was a less meaningful response entirely. Whereas the, the, old, the, the other one, who's a bit grumpy, the worst thing about this illustration is that you as parents have already put one of your children into one of these categories. <laughs> the, the, the other one who's a bit grumpy looks out the window at midday and he sees his dad toiling away with no help. He says, all right, better give the old man some help. And he does the right thing. He's less chipper about it. But he does the right thing. I want to suggest that good, healthy, heartfelt responses are not all about what you feel all the time, but about doing what is right. Here's the fourth thing about a healthy heart. It recognizes its vulnerability to becoming hard. It recognizes that the heart is a very delicate thing. Then it can be hardened so easily. Hebrews chapter 3 The advice to some Christians there is, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See to it. There's a responsibility for us to watch our heart, to make sure we don't get cynical. You look at people in the scripture like Pharaoh who became increasingly hard of heart through the decisions he made. That scripture also tells us that the way we avoid getting hard-hearted is to be in a community where we get encouraged. Students, new students, great to have you here. Make sure you join a church. Make sure you're in a community where you get support. Well, here's the good thing about it. When you get hard-hearted and you come into a community where people are more soft-hearted than you, it arrests you and you think, gosh, I'm, I'm being a bit cynical. You walk into a room with people full of faith and you start being all kind of bitter and resentful and, and, and it just stops you and you think, oh yeah, I've got a problem here. It's so helpful to be in community and God wants you to be part of a church. There's the four points of diagnosis. Here's the treatment. question is, well, how do we get that soft heart? It's all very well to say, we must be like this, and this is what it looks like. Well, this is what the Bible says. It says that when God comes into your life, he takes your heart of flesh, he takes your heart of stone, and he gives you a heart of flesh. If you find yourself hard-hearted today, it could be for this simple reason, especially hard-hearted towards the things of God. It could be this, that God has never done that surgery on you and given you that heart for him. And you get that simply by asking him. You know, the longer you're a Christian, the larger your heart of love for people is meant to get. That's God's aim for you, for you to be more interested and more loving and and more into all the things that God puts into you. Yet the truth is this, many of us as Christians can find ourselves growing hard at times. We find like a crust grows on this brand new heart that God's given us. And here's the answer to that, we need the Holy Spirit. 
to prevent us from becoming hardened. We need to be responsive. And in closing, I want to invite you today to, towards a response, and the band is going to come back and join me as we lead towards a, a final song together. But here's a response I want to ask you to make. You see, some of you here today, maybe you've always thought that Christianity was about externals. It was about doing the right thing or turning up in church or just saying the right things or not swearing. And there are things that Christians do. But actually, it's about the heart. It's about the heart. And the trouble for us as humans is, although we disguise it well, there are often things deep in our heart that make us deeply ashamed. And the good news is that Jesus came to cleanse our past and to make us new and to give you this wonderful new gift. And today, this is what is on offer for you today. And I wouldn't want you to miss it that there is a heart of flesh that God can give to you. He can take that old heart of stone that couldn't care less about God, couldn't care less about his kingdom, and he can replace it with something brand new today. And all it takes is a moment of trust in Jesus to ask him to forgive your past failure, to invite him into your life, and choose to do things his way from now on. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time. Maybe you've allowed your heart to become hardened. And maybe you're thinking here today, what can be done for a heart like mine? Maybe you've just felt it just growing colder. Well, the good news is that it's never too late. The Bible says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And today you're hearing his voice. You're hearing him say, stop being hard. And that's good news because it means that God's mercy is right there for you. And today you can simply come to him and you can say, God, have mercy on me. Soften my heart. And God can make your heart brand new. Ask for his grace and forgiveness. God is so good with hearts. He changes hearts. He makes them brand new. And he repurposes them for his glory. And today God is going to start doing something brand new in some of your hearts, which is going to bear fruit, not just today or tomorrow, but in 10 and 20 years' time. So today I want to invite you to respond and to stand, and we're going to sing together this song, just asking God to change our heart. And if you're wanting to respond to him, maybe just do that in worship as we respond, and we'll have a moment to pray in just a few moments.